0: This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. Today on the podcast, I'm happy to be joined by Sandrine Verstappen. Sandorin is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Vienna. In addition to her writing, she is also a filmmaker and the founding director of the Vienna Visual Anthropology Lab. Sandorin's latest book is New Lives in Anand, Building a Muslim Hub in Western India, published last year by University of Washington Press. In 2002, when widespread anti-Muslim violence broke out across Gujarat, India, the town of Anand was perceived as something of a safe haven. Against this historical backdrop, the book ethnographically explores contemporary Anand. In the decades since 2002, the town became a hub for Muslims at multiple scales, an aspirational destination for rural villagers, a regional center in western India, and a place linked to diasporic sites abroad. In the following conversation, Sandrine discusses this work in Anand, touching on themes of transnationalism, placemaking, and multi sided ethnography. The book was published as an open access title, so I would encourage listeners to seek it out. But for now, here's my conversation with Sandrine Verstappen. Andarin Verstappen, thank you so much for joining me on the channel today to talk about your new book, New Lives in Anand, Building a Muslim Hub in Western India. Your new book examines the Muslim community in Anand, which became a hub for Muslims following a period of widespread anti-Muslim violence in India, and Gujarat particularly. We're going to get into some of the details in just a little bit, but how did you first come to this field site and to this project? How does it fit within your broader academic work?
1: Yeah. Hi, Benjamin. Nice to meet you. And thank you for having me. I am a social and visual anthropologist and I've worked on quite a yeah, wide range of topics. Uh, migration and mobility has been the emphasis. I've also worked on film and visual anthropology. And through my research in India, I've often worked on issues of urban development, um, residential segregation, and the politics of community and caste. So, yeah, that's quite a diverse uh, range of topics. But if you ask me really what the underlying driver is, it's always in some way or another looked at patterns of in and exclusion, or maybe more broadly, social inequality. And yeah, as an anthropologist, I address these kind of topics ethnographically. So always from a people perspective and also transnationally. So often with some kind of mobile or multi-sided uh, forms of ethnographic research. And somehow, through my research, I've always been drawn to issues of place and placemaking. Um, so this is, yeah, kind of a thread that often comes up, uh, either related to urban or to rural matters. Um, so, yeah, there's kind of broader underlying question, always thinking about politics of space, of belonging. Um, how do places obtain social identities? And how do some ways of being become normal or desirable? And how do other... Yeah, ways of being become seen as dangerous or problematic. So, yeah, these are kind of the underlying questions that I yeah work around. And then in India, yeah, I've often worked in, on India in relation with this diaspora. So sometimes in the UK or the USA and previously also in the Netherlands. Um, but I've grown to focus on a particular region of India, and that's the Western Indian region of Gujarat. And the book that we discussed today is about Anand. So it's a small town um, that I've really yeah, looked at in, in detail and also in relationship with its uh, international linkages. Yeah, so if you ask me how I, how I came to the field site, I don't know if you want to know all the, the details that led me there, but in a nutshell, the answer is networks. Uh, the University of Amsterdam, where I was trained as an anthropologist, has a long history of studying Gujarat, Actually, in fact, I'm the 15th person who has uh, done a PhD on Gujarat from the University of Amsterdam. So these are kind of academic networks that have a long history already since the 1960s. And I don't know if they will continue in the future, but um, this is how I ended up in Gujarat.
0: Can you describe contemporary Anand and in particular its Muslim community before we get into kind of the historical details that form the background of the work you did there?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Anand is the district capital of the rural Anand district, and it's a typical example of an Indian market town. Um, So you can find many traders selling produce from the local markets. You can find everyday people from the surrounding villages traveling there to work or to, to do business or shopping or to go to school and to get access to government offices. So, yeah, it's a kind of rural center, you can say. And the residents are also very much in contact with the nearby villages, sometimes to family, sometimes to land, or all kinds of social economic relationships. And the people who live in Anand, they yeah, many of them are also also rural urban immigrants. They have come to Anand in the past or sometimes in the recent past from the surrounding villages. And so yeah, I think of them as kind of small town. People, they think of themselves as better off than their family members in the villages. They are the lucky ones who have been able to move uh, upwards and and to the the city, to the nearest city. But they think of themselves also as less urbanized than their relatives in, for example, Amdabad or Bombay, who who are uh, living in much more uh, expensive houses. Uh, The the living conditions in such big cities are much more uh, inaccessible. So, yeah, you can say it's a typical small town in a provincial region of India.
0: You're particularly in the book writing about the Charvatar Sunni Vora community. Apologies if I've mispronounced that. Please correct me if I have. But what is their history and how did you come to focus on that particular group of Muslims?
1: Yeah. So, Anand is a Hindu majority town, it has a um, sizable minority of uh, Muslims and Christians as well. 22% of the of the town is Muslim. And that is considerably higher than in the surrounding region, because in Gujarat, so whole, it's 10% of the population is Muslim. So when I came to the town, um, it was decided that I should do research in Anand, but I was not exactly sure what I would do research about yet. I was very interested in, yeah, who are these Muslims living on the northeastern outskirts of the town? They were quite visible. People were talking about that, that they had come recently. And yeah, I started to um, yeah look for opportunities to, to research in that neighborhood. And yeah, if you ask me who they are, they're very diverse. Their religious practices are very diverse. Their languages are diverse. Some speak Gujarati, others speak Hindi or Urdu. They have also quite a diverse uh, occupational trajectory, so many of them work in trade or in commerce, but also you see some work in transport uh, or in all kinds of small-scale industries, Um, and some are bureaucrats or working in, let's say, uh, more highly educated professions uh, in banks or in all kinds of offices in the town. So, yeah, this is kind of the broad uh, outline of the, the Muslims in, in Anand. And then how did I come specifically to Voraz? Um, there are, you can say, people look at each other uh, within a neighborhood like that by their surname. And their the surname kind of indicates, uh, yeah, in many cases overlaps with the community, the samach, what people say to, uh, to which people belong. And Voraz is one of those communities or Samaj. And since waras were 50%, or or that was an estimate, there is no formal statistics about that, but according to the neighborhood and according to my own observations, waras were the majority among the Muslims in the town. So I did not only talk to waras, of course, but as I got more and more into the social life of the town, I saw that they were very prominent, very visible, also leading figures in local schools or in local hospitals. So I started to get more and more interested in their story.
0: Yeah, and that story brings us to that historical backdrop to the book and Anand's role in becoming this Muslim hub. So there was this widespread anti-Muslim violence that broke out across Gujarat in 2002. However, you write, quote, most of Anand's Muslims waited for a mob that never came. And you talk about how it was at least perceived as a relatively safe haven from a lot of this violence breaking out elsewhere um, in the region. Perhaps you can recount a little bit of that context and explain why this place was seen as relatively safe for Muslims.
1: Yeah, so maybe first a brief recap, the violence itself made me not all the listeners know about this, that the violence I talk about in the book, it occurred in 2002, 20 years ago. Um, it uh, led to an estimated death of 2,000 people. 20,000 Muslim homes and businesses were destroyed. Approximately, as far as we know, 150 to 200 Muslim women were raped. And yeah, a lot of um, collateral damage in terms of houses on fire, vehicles uh, destroyed and then shops attacked. And to make this a bit concrete, what happened is that trucks loaded with men, roamed the countryside for uh, weeks and months. And these trucks carried um, not just men, but they also carried kerosene um, and sticks, sometimes weapons. And they carried address lists of the Muslim houses in the villages. And they specifically targeted the Muslim houses that were in, you can say, Hindu-majority neighbourhoods. So, yeah, for, of course, many people, this was a watershed moment. It, it, some communal violence had happened before in nearby cities, but not like this in, in the rural villages. So it was a very, um, when I was there, in I started, started my in 2010, it was still very much uh, visible and, and many people were still talking about it. Anand, and that is yeah quite mysterious, Anand stayed relatively safe. And, yeah, some scholars have asked why do some places stay safe and others become uh, in the middle of the heat. There's, of course, many explanations, and I did not myself do research into these causes of the violence, but the explanation that was favored by the Muslim residents of Anand was that at the time, the Muslims that were living in Anand lived in a kind of pocket, a little pocket of houses that were quite of clustered together, and it would have been dangerous for the mobs to enter there, so there might have been a retaliation. And this explanation also confirmed in some research by sociologist Rahil Dativa Who did more broader research into these patterns of violence and safety, and so yeah, I can't confirm what happened because I wasn't there and I didn't research read, read into that. But this is the explanation that people give, and also is confirmed by the fact that there were some Muslims in Anand that were attacked at the time, but they were all living in Hindu majority area. So the idea that living together brings safety really settled in at that time.
0: Moving forward, how did this exceptional calm in Anand during that two thousand two violence? transformed the town in the decades since then, which really gets us up to speed with where your project picks up.
1: Yeah, so that was my contribution to really look into the long-term consequences and I did that Yeah, in the 10-15 years after 2002 uh, up till 2020 when I was still in contact with people while I was finishing the book. Yeah, so what happened is that many people believed that it was safe to live in Anand and to live among other Muslims and so the number of Muslims doubled in the 10 years after the violence. Uh the town really grew uh that part where the Muslims settled grew. And the influx of Muslims you can trace it also in the Indian census that the the, the population of Muslims really grew significantly in the time cannot be explained by general urbanization patterns. Of course other people also moved to a nearby city from the nearby villages but Muslims moved much faster and yeah, so it led to particular changes in terms of the built environment, but also in terms of social relationships that had to be reconfigured and new livelihoods that had to be built up, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So in the book, you're really careful to challenge ideas that marginalization is kind of the key to understanding a place like Anand. And you resist the temptation to define that community in terms of estrangement or ghettoization, all these sorts of negative characterizations instead you write quote, center and hub are apt terms to describe a neighborhood that has turned into a focal point of urban rural urban and transnational connectivity End quote so beyond being a safe haven or an enclave against communal violence how has anand also become this kind of focal point or hub at multiple scales
1: you're right. It's a very important um, yeah, conceptual point that I make. How do we describe a neighborhood like that? And I appreciate very much all the scholarship that has been done that really describes and, and tries to measure the marginalization of Muslims in India and, and, and their residential segregation. But I do critique some of the terms that have become very dominant in this discussion. And one of these terms is the term of the ghetto. I'm not the only one who critiques that term. There have been other critiques. Uh, of one of the like advantages is that it draws relationships between, for example, you can think comparatively about the Jewish ghettos in Europe or the black ghettos in the United States, and that helps you to kind of think about the kind of processes that might be at stake comparatively. But there are also problems with the term. And for me, the main problem was that people did not know the term they don't use the term and when I explained how it was used in academic or yeah journalistic literature they also did not recognize that at all the associations of the term so yeah I was challenged to think how can I actually describe this neighborhood and in terms that make sense to its residents and so I came up with this notion of hub or center as an alternative and I say center because for two reasons. Main first reason is that for Muslims of Anand, it is not a peripheral area. It is actually the center of the town. So within the town, they do not also have a special name for their neighborhood. They just say Anand, and that is where they live. And there's no need to differentiate, the, let's say, the urban core of Anand from the place where Muslims live. So in that sense, it's an urban center for them. It's also central to the meaning of the town. And it's also a regional center for many of the people who came to Anand, as I said, they maintain linkages with the villages, but also for people still living in the village, they have become very much interested in Anand. They see Anand as a place to move towards, maybe in the future. They see Anand also as a place of aspiration, where modernity is maybe happening, where uh, modern lifestyles become accessible, where different cultural practices can be observed or can be participated in. So it is a classic story about rural urban, um, urbanization, where in which this particular market town becomes a center of four Muslims in the entire region.
0: You mentioned that the influx of Muslims comprised basically a doubling in size by 2012 from 2002, in addition to that demographic change, Anand has also undergone a lot of spatial transformation and development and construction booms. How does that fit into this bigger story you're telling about creating a Muslim hub or a Muslim center in Western India?
1: Yeah. So many people used to say when they would show me around, you know, sometimes I would be in the back of a scooty or people would walk around with me and they would just say, this used to be a jungle commenting on the kind of agricultural and community land that was 10, 50 years ago was what uh, was visible. And you could also see it. there were patches of land that were, yeah, very well developed. There were some very well, you know, new painted, brilliant houses. And then a few steps away, there would be a, a still stretch of open land that was probably already uh, legally converted into urban land, but had not yet been established uh, in terms of uh, There was nothing to see yet. There was no house yet or nothing, no school. And yeah, this kind of patchy landscape was um, yeah very visible if you walked around these neighborhoods. So when I came in 2010, you saw this patchy landscape. And every time when I came back in the years afterwards, there had been new housing societies or new cinema Uh, new restaurants and offices. So yeah, you could see the changes every time.
0: As with a lot of other South Asian communities, overseas migration is a common practice these days. And I wonder if you could just sketch the contours of the fora diaspora globally, because you mentioned that Anand is this place of aspiration locally. It also is kind of a regional center and a regional hub. But in some ways, it's also now part of the global story of migration. So how does that fit in to Anand's function, both materially and imaginatively in this increasingly transnational context?
1: Yeah. So when I say that Anand has become a center, then um, it has also become a center in the sense of people feel that the transnational world is Uh, very visible in Anand and that is true for the whole town so everywhere you go in the town you see billboards for study abroad or visa agencies and uh, money changes and in December you can find overseas Indians shopping for clothes and and yeah in coffee shops hanging around so this is visible in the whole town and it's also visible in the Muslim area of Anand. For Vora specifically actually there is not a dense migration history, if not in comparison to many other communities in India. So the local Hindu Patidar community, for example, has a much longer and much denser history of migration and also Muslim uh, communities living on the Gujarati coast. They have traveled overseas on boats uh, to East Africa or to the Middle East in the past. And these kind of migration histories were not there among the war as they were more kind of an inland community an agricultural focused community. They were doing trade, but not overseas trade. So, yeah, I, the, the people that do have, um, you know, that visit Anand, many overseas Gujarati Muslims uh, somehow entered our neighborhood and I was able to meet them. Uh, so I started to ask, where are you from? And uh, then later on, I also followed them up uh, to do research there. And so in this way, I was able to discover kind of the, the yeah, where do these people come from and when do they move there, et cetera. Uh, in the United States, that was one of the important migration destinations, Vora started to uh, go there around the 1960s, initially on student visa, sometimes on business or work visa, and then later through systems of family reunion, they kind of established themselves. And there are now around estimations around 1,000 Voras uh, spread around the United States. And the United Kingdom was also an important migration destination. Uh, Many people in the neighborhood had a son who was studying or on temporary work visa. In the UK, but there were also some more settled families, around 120 families who had moved there already in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s, and they had mostly come a work and business visa at the time. And some few of them had come to East Africa, um, through British colonies such as Uganda or, or Tanganyika. So it is it is a small migration, but it is very visible in a place like Anand. And that is partly because these yeah, transnational um, yeah, linkages, they, they remain important for the overseas Gujarati Muslims. And some of them have actually invested in land in Anand or bought a house in Anand. And they participate in social life in this yeah, growing Muslim hub. So in that sense, it is not just a regional center, but also a transnational center for the Voras.
0: Yeah, part of your research was actually conducted in the United Kingdom for this project. And this is actually one place where our research interests intersect pretty directly, although it's not actually the only place. There are many places where it overlaps. And I really appreciated your discussion of multi-sided ethnography. So I just wanted to let you reflect on that a little bit. Why was it so important to add a transnational ethnographic dimension to to your methodology for this project?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to explain, uh, but also happy to know a little bit more about your own research uh, and because you say our research interests intersect. So could you tell me a a little bit? I'm curious, what, what intersections did you actually see?
0: Sure. So, I mean, I'm also trained as an anthropologist and I worked in Kathmandu. So my dissertation research, which was my primary project, is about a neighborhood called Tamil, which is commonly disparaged as kind of the tourist ghetto. I mean, a very different use of a term like ghetto, but it's commonly disparaged as the backpacker hub, the tourist ghetto, the sort of inauthentic part of Kathmandu. And in fact, it's this very important site for the production of new kinds of lifestyles, new kinds of middle-class consumption, new kinds of transgressive cultural practices within Kathmandu. And then it is deeply intertwined with diasporic linkages to specifically the UK, Hong Kong, and also the United States. So yeah, that's why I was really appreciative reading your book about this way in which certain kinds of places and practices of contesting space and claims to various kinds of cities enables new modes of life, new modes of community to take shape, because that's really sort of the centerpiece of my own work in Kathmandu. Again, the the contexts are very different and the historical backgrounds are very different, But the dynamic of these sites that become almost linchpins in bigger cultural projects, I found a lot of um, resonances between your book and my own dissertation work.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. So, yeah, in terms of multi-sided research, of course, this is no longer new. It's kind of well-established practice now in anthropology to do um, multi-sided research. It comes from a long-term critique on this classic uh forms of single site ethnography that had the tendency to sometimes over-emphasize that a society yeah was kind of self-contained uh or or separated from other societies. And anthropologists of globalization mobility have for a long time critiqued those kind of container models of society and multi sided model is one yeah possible answer to to opening up that perspective. And so in that sense, multi-sited ethnography is now quite established, but what is, I think, new or different about my research is how I really tried to combine a neighborhood study that was very much emplaced and very much grounded in the site with uh, multi-sited research in the UK as well as the USA eventually. And this um, really came from contacts in the neighborhood. So I lived there for almost a year and then in that here i met all kinds of people who live in the neighborhood but also people who did not live there but just participated in it as visitors or maybe as they had a house there and they only lived there in their holidays for a few months a year or even a few weeks a year and when these people came my neighbors were very keen on introducing me to them uh, because often they were high status figures in the in the neighborhood and they somehow associated me with the abroad or the international world so it was it made sense to them to introduce me and some of these visitors uh, from the UK USA and sometimes other places they were often extremely busy they had to go from one shop to the other they had to see a lot of family members maybe they had to go to a doctor or dentist So not all of them gave me a lot of time and I completely understood that, of course. So sometimes I could only speak for them uh, for half an hour to them. But some of them were quite curious and kind of enjoyed having this new person around. And in a few cases, I was actually able to tag along with them for almost two weeks to see what they're doing, who they're visiting and what their um, kind of activities were. So through these contacts, then I found... Also, yeah, where they live in the UK or the USA. And a few people very enthusiastically actually invited me to come. Um, For example, when there was a big Vora community event in the USA in 2015, the Vora Community Association in the USA, they said, OK, would this not be a good opportunity for you to visit us? And then, of course, I was very happy with the invitation and very curious to see how People there think about Anand and about yeah, the other the Gujarat region.
0: Yeah, I think the key that you mentioned is this global ethnography through site based research. Right? It's mm-hmm. I, I think the theory of, or the sort of critique of traditional ethnography that started emerging in the late eighties, say. It took us a while, I think, as a discipline to catch up to that methodologically. And so, I mean, I remember, you know, reading Doreen Massey and George Marcus and all of these sort of key people making this critique from the 80s and 90s and, and realizing that it's actually difficult to implement. And I've similarly stumbled into something like you, where if you find these key hub places, then actually ethnography is very well suited to tracking these global, um, these global transnational dynamics. So anyway, bringing it back to Anandavit, how does the town enable new lives to take shape for its Muslim inhabitants in terms of education or community or prospects for livelihood? What is the town and its sort of cultural function as a hub? What is it doing for the Muslim community?
1: Yeah. On the one hand, as I said, you can look at Anand as a universal story of urbanization it happens everywhere in india that people are transforming themselves into urban people and coming to terms with what that might mean uh, but it is also simultaneously a story of resilience uh, and of overcoming the very dramatic episodes of violence and displacement and looking at that story from the perspective of this one community in one neighborhood in one town the voras gives a very particular yeah, angle to current stories that are being told about India and about Gujarat. And this is something that yeah, I think is one of the yeah, more important contributions really in terms of what's happening in India now. The Voras, the, the stories they told about tell about themselves are really stories about regional belonging and about Anand as a regional center of and for Voras. And this is very different very different um, kind of conceptualization of the region, as we hear in yeah the media or in political narratives about the region of Gujarat. So what the Voras do by telling each other stories that are not mediatized, that are not brought to the public stage, is really to tell each other and to tell their children, like, we belong here. This is um, a long-term history that we have. We have long-term linkages with the agricultural economy, with the villages. Uh, with other communities in the region, not just Muslims, but also Hindus, and particularly the Hindu-Patidar community that has a lot of similarities with the Voras. And these stories sometimes also highlight, for example, the ancestry of Voras, that they are actually converted Muslims, that they have been converted from Hinduism in the past. Um, Or they talk about the marriage system of the Voras that uh, indicates how certain villages are related to each other and if you are from a certain village that means you have a certain status in the marriage system. So I cannot go into detail about all of this but I have a whole chapter about this in the book and I think it's very important to yeah, retell these stories that were told to me and that are told to uh, young people by by the elderly people in, in the Bora community and the value of these stories even though they're not told yeah, in the in the media or in the public sphere very often. For me, it works as a kind of antidote against all these stereotypes and Hindu nationalist configurations of what could be seen as India or what could be seen as Gujarat. We can have a whole different perspective when we look um, with the Boras at Anand and at Gujarat.
0: Yeah, I hope listeners will seek out those detailed discussions that you offer in the book. And this seems like another good time to emphasize that you've actually released this book, Open Access, through University of Washington Press. So again, for listeners, the new book is New Lives in Anand, Building a Muslim Hub in Western India. Now that the book is out, though, as by way of concluding our conversation today, what research plans do you have moving forward? Are you continuing your research with this community or have you moved on to other things?
1: Yeah, I think... um it is time after 10 years to move on to other topics. And actually, I have started new research. I work now on the social lives of cyclists. Uh, that seems like a completely different topic. Uh, and so it also it, it requires a lot of reading and, and uh, new um, access finding and, and, and discovering of new field sites, etc. But there is an underlying connection between the two. And both are very much thinking about, in both projects, I'm very much thinking about questions of belonging and, and not belonging. And, of course, for the Muslims, this is related to their position as a religious minority in a country that is, where Muslims are increasingly seen as the outsider or as, yeah, the even the dangerous outsider. But for cyclists, there's also, yeah, of course, in the majority of cities in the world, cyclists are marginalised. And so I seek out how cyclists are forming communities to make themselves more visible. Um, How do they try to contest their marginalization? How do they find ways around it? And it is still very much about the social dynamics of space and how people uh, engage with the sociality of space. And again, still very much from the perspective of marginalized uh, groups, although from a very different kind of marginalization.
0: Great. I look forward to reading that stuff as it starts to come out and as that research continues to take shape. In the meantime, thank you so much, Sandrine Verstappen, for joining me on the channel to talk about your work in Gujarat. And again, for listeners, the new book is New Lives in Anand, Building a Muslim Hub in Western India, available open access from University of Washington Press. Sandrine, thank you so much for joining. me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That was Sandrine Verstappen, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Vienna. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit EAS.Asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time.